With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It's Thursday night. It's what is today? Today is April 8th. 2021 mark daly and mark hamilton here and we're, we're going to do what we try to do each and every week and that's talk about formula one which is surprising mark that we actually do a fairly well i don't know if it's a successful or not we'll leave that up to the the, the listeners but i'm actually really proud of the fact that uh, since we've been doing the show together considering all the common interests that we have that we pretty much actually stay on topic <laughs> whenever we sit down to do the show each and, uh, and every week so from a personal point of view i consider that uh, a bit of a win but how's it going this week uh, back to normal we had a long weekend I can't believe that tomorrow's already Friday. It will be Friday by by the time the majority of uh, people sit down and, and and pump this in through their phones. And another week almost in the books. It's really tough, though, because I was so amped up for this marathon of an F1 season. We talked about this last week. But to kind of have this start-stop, no pun intended, kind of yep. approach to the beginning of the season is so... And I know we're going to have all the Formula One we can eat for the next seven or eight months, but... This three-week gap is so hard that we get that we get that tease in Bahrain, and now we're forced to wait three weeks to get to Imola. It's killing me, but <laughs> I'm uh, I'm doing well, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to shame you a little bit here. So I oh, go am ahead, go the, ahead. Is, I don't even know if this is the proper term, but I like to think that I am the consummate podcasting professional. Here I am. I sit in front of my Mac. It's ultra reliable. I don't have to worry about viruses or malware or updates. And I promise you, listeners, if we could get Mark Daly onto a Mac, we might get five episodes a week because it seems like every time we sit down to record, you're forced to do surprise Windows updates for three and a half hours. It's shameful. And uh, I I purely blame myself. I just haven't uh, invested in better technology. So I will will hang my head in shame here. And... um, well, I guess I have to bite the bullet at some point and, like I say, invest in something better. But uh, l- let's see if I can dodge this one and get onto the uh, get onto the topic <laughs> at hand and, and avoid the uh, the embarrassment as much as I can. But you know, it's funny that you should mention about how this the, sort of the the back end, especially the second half of the season, really seems to be a uh, r- really. I guess backloaded compared to the beginning, but you know, it, it did sneak up on me a, a little bit because I was thinking the other day, oh no, you know, we still have like two weeks to go until we get to Imola, and then I checked the the, the calendar. We're only a week out, so it's dragged out a little bit. But at the same time, I guess with all the crazy things that happen just uh, in day to day life, it's actually kind of sped up and kind of caught me a little bit. So I'm going to take that uh, a little bit as a win. So it, well, I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't mean that there's Formula One this weekend, but it's actually coming one week earlier than expected and you know and that's the one thing just to to maybe go off on a bit of a side tangent here before we really get into the into the meat of the show here but 
I really hate the summer break because you really feel by the time you get to August that you're really in the groove of that season. And just to get that three, three and a half weeks off between Hungary and Spa, I find that that's almost like a hard reset. You know, <laughs> you take those three and a half weeks off, whatever it is, and you come back. And I'm struggling by the time it's 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 all over and you're going back to racing again. It's it's like having almost two seasons to a certain extent. But hey, you know whatever. That's my little piece. So let's not. To, let's not dwell on that too long, but we wanted to start this one, uh, this show tonight with a little bit of, um, well, we'll call it a Canadian flavor, because this is one that you and I, we've been talking about a, you know, quite a bit among ourselves uh, during the during the week, and uh, we've really been wondering whether or not the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal is going to go ahead as planned. I mean, we are... I guess pretty much officially now in the third wave of COVID, it seems that cases are up in a lot of places across the country, despite the the, the vaccine rollout, which has been honestly quite slow compared to yeah, uh, a lot of other we're countries. At 12, yeah, 12 we're people. is it twelve this week? Wow, that's that's no no that, twelve total. Don't get ahead of yourself here. No, that's twelve what total I, that, across the country. Yeah, I know that's that's what I meant. Uh, actually, twelve. It wasn't like twelve million, but yeah. You know, there's uh, that. That's a completely different issue. But uh, apparently, they are going to move ahead. And you brought these a uh, couple of stories or a couple of issues to uh, to my attention the other day. So maybe I'll just hand it off to you. But it was uh, basically, I think the, the 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 crux of the conversation is that they are pushing ahead to to hold the, the the Grand Prix in June. But then there's also this other sidebar, another side issue that a lot of people are really ticked off because. The race that was uh, canceled last year in June 2020, they haven't issued any refunds. And, well, I mean, buying Formula One tickets is an expensive thing anyways. And still be sitting here 10 months later is, um, that's actually no bueno if you if you ask me. Yeah, and to give, a, I think, our, our listeners a little bit of context, I, I, again, hopefully our, our American listeners will understand this, but geographically, Canada is a, a gigantic country. Like, we're in Vancouver. It's a five-and-a-half-hour flight to get to Montreal, which is where the Canadian Grand Prix is. Um, Quebec is a province, which is where Montreal is situated in, is currently in a partial lockdown and could potentially shift into a near full lockdown in the next couple of weeks. So um, Quebec, relative to the rest of the country, is trending reasonably well in terms terms of um, case count and things like that, but it's not great. But when you try to contextualize how quickly this F1 race is coming, it's really two months ahead. And I, I think a lot of us had kind of expected, at least myself, had expected that there would have been some sort of firm commitment on whether this race was going to go ahead or whether it wasn't. I think at this stage, it's pretty clear that the race organizers absolutely intend to hold the race on June 13th. But I think that that makes some assumptions. And and currently there is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but currently for anyone entering the country, Mark, it's a 14-day quarantine, right? So yes, we're going to yep. see a race in Baku on the 6th of June, and we're going to see the Montreal Grand Prix presumably on the 13th of June. If the Canadian federal government is still mandating a 14-day quarantine, that race isn't happening. So the organizers are assuming that quarantine is going to change, that all of a sudden in the next two months, the federal government is going to step and say, hey, it's no go. You don't need to worry about this. Now, they haven't made that exception for the NBA Raptors. They haven't made that exception for the Major League Baseball Toronto Blue Jays. Both of those teams spent all of last season in the U.S. and will probably spend all of this season playing out of temporary homes in the U.S. So it still seems very unlikely to me that this is going to go ahead. Um, Short of F1 stepping in and saying, hey, we just need a TV spectacle and we can get around some of those quarantine requirements. Now, the other story that you alluded to is is one that I find fairly 
problematic and troublesome. So obviously they were selling tickets to last year's Formula One Grand Prix. We didn't know the, the, the COVID pandemic really didn't strike us in Canada until March and it hit Quebec particularly hard at that time. But for the months preceding the pandemic, the race organizers were full steam ahead selling tickets. Now it's started to come out um, largely because of a number of lawsuits that have been filed that the third party ticket retailers and the race organizers themselves haven't really started issuing refunds on the tickets that were sold for last year's Grand Prix. And it seems to be that for me, from an optics perspective, this is a really bad look. Um, and, and I get it ultimately that the individual race organizers are the ones that are selling the ticket. It's not Formula One, right? Like the race organized pay a lump sum hosting fee to Formula One and they sell tickets to cover the cost of that hosting fee. But in this case, if I'm Formula One and one of my race organizers is effectively, and I hate to use such grotesque terms, but if one of my race organizers is stiffing our fans, because mm -hmm. I get it, they bought the tickets from or Octane in this case, but they're still Formula One fans. They're paying to see our product. You know what? I'm either going to put pressure on my, my race organizer to refund those tickets, or I'm going to step in and do it myself. So I just think from, from an optics look and from a perspective, kind of a, an outside perspective, it's a really bad look, especially during the pandemic that the race organizers are holding on to ticket packages worth in some cases, thousands of dollars. And I was reading a quote from a, a young gentleman in Toronto who spent $3,000 in tickets to take his family to the event last summer, which obviously didn't happen. And he's heard nothing. He's getting absolute radio silence from the third party ticket retailer that he bought from because they in turn are saying, hey, we have nothing to refund because we passed the, that revenue that you paid us onto the organizer and they're just stonewalling us yeah. so it's just it's just a bad look and it's a bad look because it's the same race organizer that is selling tickets for this year's grand prix so i i hope that there's some sort of positive reconciliation here it's just it's a bad look especially given the pandemic and how urgently a lot of those fans probably need that money well exactly and the thing that uh, is really strange too is that uh, the, the race promoters octane racing group incorporated and uh, apparently they did say that they were going to start uh, issuing refunds back in October of last year. And, uh, well, nothing's happened since then. Like you said, it's radio silence. And the only thing that they said that, uh, that they can't do it at this point because uh, there's uh, been delays in the refund uh, post uh, process. So you take a situation that uh, optically looks really, really bad to begin with, and then you come up with a, an, ex an excuse that is really like a, a non-reason or a non-excuse. It's just this vague you know, statement that uh, is just really infuriating. And I can understand that people everywhere lost money uh, when an event like that was canceled. But still, I mean, you, you must be able to find the money somewhere. You know, it's, it's just it's a really, really bad look. And hopefully it gets uh, sorted out really soon. And uh, just going back to your previous point, what you were talking about, just uh, with uh, the possibility that this race, uh, well, we don't know if it's going to go ahead or not. At this point in time, on the eighth day of April, I find it really hard to believe that this race is going to go off, like you said, in just two months from now, when you look at just the state of, uh, of the pandemic across the country. And I really found it... I don't want to say amusing. Let, let's just say ironic that after all this time and all these months have passed that the, the the Center for Disease Control in the United States issued a travel advisory for Americans not to travel to Canada because of COVID cases, particularly the variants that are spreading around here. And I just uh, thought to myself, you know, how, how we sat back for all these times and thought, gosh, you know, how, how lucky we are compared to the U.S. and how good of a job we've been doing here and what well, we have no domestic uh, vaccine production, which 
which is problematic and just a, a really slow rollout. And meanwhile, everything's just festering and it's just uh, not a good situation. And believe me, I would love to see the Canadian Grand Prix go ahead in June and maybe they'll be able to finagle. Is that a word? Well, it, it is now. <laughs> We're going to use it anyways. Maybe they will be able to arrange something with the authorities, with the, the success. I mean, you have to admit that after last year, and even though there were isolated cases of COVID within the F1 bubble, they were fairly contained. They were fa- fairly small. Of course, there were some high profile ones like Lance Stroll, like obviously Lewis Hamilton and uh, Sergio Perez. So the, the, the driver ones were always going to be the big uh, the, the big stories but by and large they proved that it worked and it worked and if they can keep them separated perhaps there's uh th- there is a way to do it and if they feel that they can do it maybe there is some sort of discussion happening at, at some sort of level at this point in time that is pointing in that uh, direction but at the end of the day I, it really comes down to the health authorities to really say yes or no and okay well we gave you the green lights you know pun intended but now we're gonna have to pull the plug and try against it uh, next year guys because we've heard before they can't move it into the back end of the year because it's too busy they can't run it after what is the sweet spot before the the middle of october right because after that the weather is just not really really good enough to hold a a formula one race in montreal so so here's a potential idea and you got me thinking when you mentioned this a couple of minutes ago okay but despite the fact that we have a really hyper compressed extended calendar this year we still have a four-week break in august right yeah the canadian gp is kind of unique because they they jump from Baku to North America and then straight back to France. And typically when they come over here, it's because they string a bunch of races together. So they go Austin, Mexico, Brazil. Um, so you're already making that one kind of one-time exception to come. But what if potentially you bump the Canadian Grand Prix into the middle of that summer break? The benefit being that probably that quarantine restriction is going to be lifted, fingers crossed, yeah. knock on wood. But potentially you could also actually get some fans into that vent. You know what, you're two, three months clear of that June date. Hopefully things have presumed it's the middle of the summer. Like maybe that's a consideration. But that said, again, I, I think Montreal is a highly, highly, highly bureaucratic city. And the event space is used for a number of different festivals throughout the summer. So they Oh, who cares? It's Formula it One. Kick the rest of them out. They're, they're, they're not important. <laughs> oh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Bring the race to Mission Raceway Park here in the lower mainland. It's the worst track on the planet, but please like, <laughs> just make this race happen. So yeah, I, I think I think we're probably going to find out pretty yeah. soon. I know the mayor in Montreal issued a statement a couple of days ago suggesting she's still excited to see it happen. She wants to see it happen. And of course she does because it brings significant exposure to the city and usually pumps a ton of capital into the city in terms of tourist dollars and things like that. But if people can't attend the race, that's not going to happen anyways because nobody's going to be coming into the country to fill your hotels to watch the race from a New York State. But yeah, I think we've beat this subject to death now. Well, that's good. Uh, so I, I do have a couple of other stories that I want to go into that are sort of uh, related, but uh, let's just uh, take our first break here and we'll come back. And I want to talk about how the new proposed or the not the proposed changes, uh, but the actual modifications to the Albert Park uh, circuit for the Australian Grand Prix. They estimate that it's going to shave up to five seconds off the lap times, which is huge. Anyways, we'll talk about that in just a moment as we take a first break here on the podcast is always up to speed with Formula One. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. 
Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, well, welcome back to the show. And uh, yes, well, Mark, we've talked all about uh, the issues with the Canadian Grand Prix. Will it happen? Will it not happen? Uh, Refunds and unrefunds and no refunds and all those things. Well, the one thing that I'm really looking forward to is the Australian Grand Prix in a very unusual time slot in November uh, this year. It, It really had a bit of a strange vibe to the start of the season i thought that bahrain was a very enjoyable race and they i think that they've done an exceptional job hosting three races in just the span of like what less than four or five months whatever it is if you go back to the two races we had at the tail end of last year the opening round here plus winter testing in between I mean, they've done, they've been phenomenal at host at the, the Sakir International Circuit, but it was a little bit strange to to get to back to racing and not be in sunny Melbourne with the palm trees. Well, I, I mean, I guess, you know, obviously the Middle East, especially Bahrain is uh, very sunny and warm as well, but it was very different. But what with the situation in Australia with, with, the, with the pandemic and they decided to push that back and they got to a date in November. And I'm really looking forward to see that to happen. But the one thing that's really cool is that uh, they've made modern modifications to the track and as I had said uh, at the just going into the break there that they figure that this could take up to five seconds off a lap time and I think that's really really exciting I, I find that it's an interesting track I think it flows nicely but there isn't really a lot of opportunities for for overtaking and I think that we've seen far too many uneventful and almost processional Grand Prix at that track over the years so I mean it's one thing to shave that much time off of the uh, off the lap times but I'm really wondering will it help uh, promote overtaking which is the the ultimate aim of these changes that they made but like everything else the the, the proof will really happen you know six months from now when we get there to racing but i'm excited about it i really am this is a, a fantastic development for a couple of reasons one i i typically get excited about this race simply because it's the first race of the calendar and you've had a couple of months off and you're excited to see the drivers in the new cars and you're excited to see the new car so even if the race itself isn't typically fantastic it's still a spectacle and it's still something i typically really enjoy the reason i'm excited about this is because the race organizers and the city and the state are really going above and beyond in investing in this track. And that's not something that you necessarily see. For instance, I would love to see Yas Marina adopt some of these changes and make some changes to that track to do some of the things that they're attempting to do at Albert Park. And if you look at the list of improvements, they're widening turn one by two and a half meters. Like that's huge. That's a lot. It's designed yeah. again to promote overtaking. They're widening turn six by seven and a half meters. And 25 the feet. the minimum speed at that corner to go from 150 to 220 kilometers an hour. Changes at turn nine and 10, introducing a fourth DRS zone. To your point right off the top, like that five seconds could potentially be a conservative estimate because it could be more depending on how the cars uh, shake out during the course of the season. But 
I think this is incredibly exciting. And we wouldn't have seen it if the race had happened in March as initially expected. They've already done some work there. Previously, they've widened the uh, the pit lane so they could um, bump up the speed a little bit. It looks like they're going to resurface the track in the offseason as well. But I'm excited that they continue to invest in this track because it speaks to the sustainability of the event going forward. And to me, it's, it's also one of the most picturesque tracks in the oh, entire lovely. series. Yeah. Nothing. I love nothing more than the drone shots at this track with with the lush tropical waterfront and the lake and the ocean and the skyscrapers. It's just beautiful. I'm super excited that they're investing in this track. You know, I hope it is actually a trend that might be reflected or mirrored at other tracks around uh, the, the the world, and it's not something that remains unique to the uh, the, the Australian Grand Prix, because uh, you hinted at it nicely that uh, it's something you like to see them do at uh, Yas Marina, and and some tracks have made uh, modifications over the years, but there are some races, there are some tracks they're just begging to have changes like that made. So I really applaud them for for doing that. They just uh, like you said, if they were going to be opening the Formula One season back in the middle of March like they were supposed to, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that. So I'm glad that they've they've decided to, you know, I hate the term thinking outside the box, but I'm glad that they've done exactly that and come up with a really cool solution. I mean, when you throw out some of those numbers, the widening the track at turn one by 2.5 meters, that's eight feet. That's a lot. That's more than the width of a car. But at turn six, 7.5 meters, that's 25 feet. That in terms of Formula One, when we're talking about to inches make a difference. I mean, that is literally acreage, right? <laughs> I mean, it's that, it's, it's a lot of area. Six, by the way, it, so basically today it's a stop corner. Now it's just going to be a, a relatively high speed sweeper. And in the F1 video game, that corner kills me. I can, oh, never, I can yep. never get through that corner. So I'm excited for it just to see how it trends. And I don't know if they're going to get it into the game this year. We'll see what EA does with that. But <laughs> I, I, hate, I hate that corner in the video game. So I'm super excited. They kind of smoothed that out a little bit. Well, you know, when it comes to the video game, uh, I'm, I'm not so bad going through the first uh, several corners. But when you come out of that really sharp term three where Fernando had that big accident a couple of oh, years ago. In, was that 15 now? 2015? Yeah, that would have been 2015, yeah. I think. Wasn't it? Gosh, time flies. And then you go back through the the, the left hander, that ninety degree left hand turn for two, turn four, then the the slight bend to, uh, through turn five. I always get up on the grass and I always end up spinning it and putting it into the wall before I even get to turn six. And yeah, that's not really uh, my forte. But yeah, otherwise, it's a pretty fun track to <laughs> to drive around in the video game. But yeah, it, it's really exciting. I mean, you, the one thing uh, that I wanted to mention as well is that they're predicting that the new top speed is going to be up to 330 kilometers an hour so just over 200 miles an hour going into turn 11 and uh, that is absolutely uh, amazing so it could really take uh, you know this to the next level and really make it a real you know even more of a, a spectacle than it already is now, Mark, moving along, and you know, when you tell me something that you are sick and tired of this, you don't want me to do that, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do, because uh, you told me uh, yesterday that you're absolutely sick and tired. You didn't want to see any uh, Red Bull stories or any stories about Valtteri Bottas, so I thought, to heck with it, I'm going to go ahead. <laughs> but, you know, the ironic thing is, you actually sent me the link for this one, so <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not like I'm throwing I'm this back your face. <laughs> but it's kind of funny that, you know, we've talked a a lot about uh, the drive to survive on Netflix uh, quite uh, substantially, quite extensively. We did the special uh, re 
preview show just a couple of weeks ago after it launched uh, just uh, in advance of the 2021 season. And it's interesting because uh, apparently, according to the producer, that the show was originally going to be just based around Red Bull and it was just going to follow them around for an entire season. And honestly, it still kind of has that feel to it because a lot of the storylines in it, regardless, you know, they 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 did one on Haas, they did one on Ferrari, they did one on McLaren. Red Bull are never too far from whatever thread they're pulling on, regardless in, in any season. But out of all the teams in Formula One, I could see Red Bull doing something like that, and it seems to me a very Red Bull kind of thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny because when I saw the, uh, and I'll be honest, I've never actually, I never actually read the story. I just saw the headline and said you the article, which is, uh, <laughs> which is something I do quite often. But yeah, it made total sense to me. And and one of the reasons it made sense to me is if you are a snowboard fan, if you're a ski fan, if you're a motorbike racing fan, Red Bull has a huge presence in all of those sports. And yeah. for the better part of the last decade, decade and a half, they've really promoted their. Um, space in those sports through producing video. So documentary footage, backstage footage, they produce and market and advertise on snowboard videos and ski videos, which are kind of these annual videos that come out every season to promote specific brands and riders and, and skiers and things like that. They, they've always been aggressively involved in the multimedia space. So when I saw this, I just chuckled. I'm like, of course, like it, it's almost funny that they haven't done this themselves. They've done something close with Mark Marquez and the Honda Red Bull team or the Honda, um, uh, MotoGP team in the past. So it kind of surprises me that they've never kind of taken this on themselves, but it does make sense that this would have been an initial consideration because obviously Christian Horner is very comfortable in front of the camera. And to your point, like every time they pull on a thread of any storyline related to any other team in Formula One during Drive to Survive, somehow that string always led through the Red Bull <laughs> camp at Milton Keynes for some bizarre reason. Like, oh, look, Aston Martin's doing a bathroom renovation at their factory and somehow Christian Horner's got reason to comment on it but yeah, yeah exactly it, right it's uh yeah it was interesting um and to be totally honest i would still watch it and maybe maybe there's still appetite to do things like this you know let's follow a specific driver for a season or a team for a season or maybe they can go back to f2 and like hey this is one of the up-and-coming drivers let's just do a biopic on him for an entire season as he makes his migration potentially towards formula one but yeah i thought it was interesting and it seemed a very natural fit for red bull based on their endeavors in multimedia over the last decade or so i mean it is still obviously very early days but a great story that uh, would have been almost ideal for that sort of that road to Formula One sort of following a Red Bull driver would be Yuki Tsunoda. I mean, just the way that he blew us away. I mean, how good would that have been sort of follow him an entire year through Formula Two and then get to his debut season in Formula One? I mean, he came P10. I mean, it's obviously not winning a Grand Prix, but for a Formula One debut for a young driver like that, and I mean, it wasn't like he just kind of fluked out and finished P10. I mean, he was competitive all race long and he was out there and uh, it was it was great to watch. It would have been uh, really cool. Now, I wanted to talk about this one. This is really interesting and uh, there's been quite a bit of uh, chatter about this one. And this is about the increased scrutiny that the FIA is uh, doing with cars uh, this season, why, they, why they've uh, really decided to get tough on, uh, on, the, on the car inspections. And I think this is really interesting. Uh, apparently, when it comes to uh, the, the, well, they, they uh, scrutiny 
engineered or they put uh, Valtteri Bottas's car through extra uh, examinations after the Bahrain Grand Prix. He was a car that was uh, drawn at random. Apparently, they have something up to 20 points that they can uh, examine or uh, 20 areas on the car, and then they focus on on several of them. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, they, they've done a lot of work just to make sure that these cars are obviously meeting the specs. Nobody's cheating. And I really think that it's a good thing. And I would honestly... I. I Obviously, I, it's uh, it's difficult for them to do. It's it's not a quick thing. They have limited uh, amount of personnel and resources to to do it. I would be kind of hoping that they could do a couple of cars after each and every race and really be uh, serious about it. And I can't help but thinking that even though this is a more recent uh, technical directive that uh, came down, I can't help but wonder if this is maybe something that is kind of uh, how do you want to word this or how do I want to word this more in the in the aftermath of the whole Ferrari engine saga, that this is something that that they've been wanting to do for a while, but they just wanted to make it as inclusive and as uh, as as wide and as um, all encompassing, I guess it is. And I think what it is uh, that for me that is interesting, like I said just now, is they have these uh, twenty different areas in the car that they can check, and then they just uh, they they just focus in on a couple of them each and every race. So I think it's an interesting uh, development. I think it's good. I mean, they've been very good at uh, checking these cars. I mean, uh, I think it's been since, what, 2006, since we uh, last had a, a car that was underweight. I think that might have been uh, Robert Kubica's uh, BMW Sauber. And then the last time there was uh, something with, um, I think it was like undersized wings. I think it was, what was it, Sergio Perez? And um, who was his teammate that year? Kobayashi? that uh, I think that they got uh, busted for having uh, uh, rear wings that didn't measure up to spec. So, I mean, the system works, but I think that uh, it probably has its roots in the Ferrari thing. And then also with the uh, <laughs> the Aston Martin, or sorry, the Racing Point saga from from last year that just went on and on and on about these, uh, you know, the, the brake ducts and the whole co- uh, copycat cars and, uh, you know, the whole pink Mercedes saga. So, I don't know. I, I'd like to get your take on that, Mark. Yeah, it's it's kind of shocking actually that this wasn't more aggressively a part of the mm-hmm. FIA culture. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, that's perfect. The way just aggressive. I that I think that nails it right on the head. Is more aggressive policing, inspection, scrutineering of the totally. cars, whatever you want to call and, it. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. I think this is a, a byproduct of one the the Ferrari experience from a couple of years ago, um, but also to the fact that all of these teams are undergoing this really transformational journey towards an entirely new car next year and then a completely new power unit in 2025. And I think it's obviously an effort to keep everybody honest. I, I find it funny though, because you know I remember going to um, a champ car, I shouldn't say, um, but I remember going to a champ car race in Edmonton back in 2006. And the, the pit lane, the garages are far more accessible to fans. Like you have to buy a a pit pass or a paddock pass to get in there, but they're far more accessible on the Friday, the Saturday uh, than they are in Formula One by far. But I, I distinctly remember how involved the sport was in the garages. Like they were everywhere. And I'm not saying that the sport that Champ Car had an official in every single garage, but they, their their presence was obvious and it was felt and they were standing next to mechanics and they were involved in the process and they were clearly scrutineering. So it's crazy that a multi-billion dollar sport like Formula One hasn't historically had more of an official presence. And I think you did a great job of summarizing this. So basically at random, one car will be picked at the conclusion of every single race and FIA will have between three and six members 
members of their team in the garage. Now, they won't be disassembling the cars. The cars are hyper-specialized, and I don't think it would be appropriate for them to be doing it, but they are folks that have been mechanics typically in the past. So they'll be there and they'll be present because when the race ends, the cars aren't loaded into a trailer or a container and shipped to the next race. They are completely broken down. They are stripped down, sent to the next race, and then completely rebuilt. And I've been fortunate that I've been in the paddock before and been able to see this happening on the Thursday before a race. But they're basically going to be present. And to your point, they're going to be working on 20 macro areas, and they're going to be looking for specific things. Now, a traditional F1 car has around 15,000 individual components. And typically amongst those those 20 macro areas, they're going to look for 50 specific pieces. And those 50 specific components will vary from race to race because you don't want to tip off off a team the next weekend that, hey, when they were in the Mercedes garage the weekend before, they were looking at this and this and this. They're going to look at something different the week before. But yeah, it's it's kind of shocking that a sport uh, at this level hasn't done more scrutineering in the past. And to your point, I totally think it's really triggered by that Ferrari experience. Well, also like last year, it became almost a bit of a running joke after the the protest for the uh, the, the racing point. I, 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 I was, it took so long for me to get uh, used to calling the Master Martin. Now I'm sort of going back in time. <laughs> now I'm having difficulty going back on the racing point. But it became a bit of a running joke last year when you had the protest lodged by Renault and uh, McLaren and whoever else was involved just uh, with the legality of that car because it just seemed it was just like an automatic thing. It's like, okay, well, we have our podium celebration and here comes the routine, the standard, the expected protest about the racing point. And what I like about it is that it is random. They will pick any one of the... the the 20 cars that are there and they'll, they'll focus in on one of those uh, those uh, 20 areas that we were talking about there are a couple of them and I think it's really good because that way you have to be honest right uh, and I, I'm sure that if you can kind of tweak and push and bend the rules as far as you can without breaking them, I'm sure that uh, anybody will try and do that uh, within the limits, right? But it might just give the teams just sort of pause to sort of uh, go back and think, well, do I really want to push this in this area with uh, these components? Because it might be our car that gets uh, randomly selected this week. And if there's any question about the legality of anything you're doing, maybe you think uh, twice about it. And also it's, it's more proactive than reactive if uh, there is an issue with a component like the the, the brake ducts on last year's racing point then this is something that well I, I guess that is a bit of a separate uh, discussion because they felt they were legal and this whole listed non-listed parts uh, saga but the whole point is that they will be focusing in on things like that so you have to be you have to be above board and I think that uh, just from a, a sporting uh, perspective from that uh, that point of view I think it's good that they're getting out in front of it rather than and then having to catch up afterwards. And like you say, for a multi-billion dollar sport, it seems almost uh, shocking, surprising, at least at at, uh, some level, that it it wasn't as maybe as thorough that we were all expecting it because you would think, well, Formula One, everything is just space age, awesome, amazing technology. You would just also think that the, the scrutineering side would be somewhere around there too, but obviously not. And... Well, let, let's hope that the system works. Yeah, and I think, and I think <clears> you hinted <throat> at this. Ultimately, I think it's designed to be 
I don't know that they're going in expecting to find anything. I, I think that if they don't find anything, it means that this strategy is working, right? Yeah. It's really just designed as a proactive deterrent. Like you may be thinking of doing this thing. Don't do this thing because if you do, we're going to find it and the world's going to know. It's not going to be a secret agreement behind closed doors, right? Oh, we that are still going bugs to broadcast <laughs> to the world what we found. So. Yeah. Yeah. And to be to be fair, like, you know, I, I kind of put uh, Formula One on blast here a little bit. Like, why did it take so long? But you look at Major League Baseball in North America, they were a decade and a half deep into the steroid era before they started imposing any kind of testing on the athletes in that sport and finally washed that out of the sport. But but yeah, so this will be uh, this will be uh, very, very interesting to see play out. Absolutely. Hey, Mark, it's time for another break here. When we come back, I've got a couple of um, Valtteri... No, I'm just kidding. I don't have any Valtteri Bottas stories. I've got a couple of Sebastian Vettel stories that I want to talk about. And uh, we're going to talk uh, specifically about what he did during lockdown last year in uh, the beginning of 2020. We'll talk about that in just a moment, so don't go away. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And we're talking Formula One mostly. I think we've been pretty good so far. We haven't wandered too far off topic. Yeah, nice eye roll there. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I was just uh, mentioning it before the break, but apparently last year when we had that four month uh, shutdown, Sebastian Vettel took uh, did an internship in organic farming to learn more about agriculture. And, well, that, that was about the most unformula one thing I think I read in the news uh, this week. And, I mean, that's great for Sebastian. I think it's a, a really cool thing for him to do something completely different. But I just, um, I, I can't really reconcile this image of Sebastian trading a Formula One car for a tractor and his fireproof overalls for a set of farmer's clothes and some, some rubber boots. It just, it, it just does not compute, but uh, still, it's kind of a cool story. Back at the end of 20, and I'm going to go on to a tangent here, but back at the end of 2019, uh, somebody in our office had organized a kind of team building exercise. And the team building exercise was that we all went to a farm and we spent the afternoon planting garlic. It was, I'm not necessarily good at physical manual labor. It was the worst. <laughs> and that was probably two hours, but it felt like the worst fall of my life. The first three months, like on your knees, like putting this stuff in the ground. Yeah, so I, I really struggle. And I, you know what? Vettel has a really great work ethic, but I still struggle to see him out there with those dusty jeans and <laughs> the, the, worn sh the worn shovel in his hand and the overalls. Like I still struggle to see that. Uh, but uh, I would say that farming is very difficult work. And I don't know where I was going with that other than the fact that, or the, the, the share the fact that I spent two hours farming and it was the worst experience of my life. <laughs> All right. Well, we won't dwell on that too much because it was clearly traumatic for you. But sort of sticking with this, uh, and I say that obviously jokingly, but uh, sticking with this uh, theme, Dr. Helmut Marko, the Red Bull Motorsport Advisor, says, and he believes this quite firmly, that he feels that Sebastian should have taken the year off of Formula One in 2021 rather from going Ferrari straight into Red Bull, or sorry, uh, straight to uh, Aston Martin. And uh, this is kind of an interesting take, I think. Um, obviously, Seb had a, a bit of a, 
what do you want to say? A bit of a, a difficult winter testing, didn't really get to too many laps in. They had reliability issues, and his weekend in Bahrain a couple of weeks ago was obviously pretty horrible. Didn't make it out of Q3, got hit with a with a penalty, started from the end of the back of the grid. His race wasn't exactly all that stellar, and then he crashed in the back of Esteban Alcon, and it just kind of went on and on and on. And uh, anyways, um, uh, Marco had to say, quote, I was of the opinion, and I told you that too, that he should take the year off, sort himself out, ask himself what he wants. I believe that a lot of uh, is possible within Formula One next year. He didn't do that. He now sits at uh, in the Master Martin, which of course is similar to the Mercedes with the low rake. They are similar cars, and this race was far from the one that uh, could have brought relief. End quote. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, it wasn't the 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 race that he really wanted to really sort of redeem himself and signal hey guys i'm back this is the sebastian that you you guys are all really used to this is the guy that um, that won four world championships and it really was a disastrous start to a season and it really it's left a lot of questions out there obviously i, I don't know if i would go as far as uh helmet marco was saying that he should have taken the year off but he does make a couple of, i think i think he makes some there, there's some good logic behind that statement at any rate you know, I'm not buying Sebastian Vettel stock, and I know you're not buying Sebastian Vettel stock, and I wasn't buying Sebastian Vettel stock last year when he joined Aston Martin, and I think mm -hmm. both of us have been very conservative and skeptical about what his performance is going to look like, and you you can kind of lean back into 2018 and 2019 a little bit and just talk about the fact that there were some good performances there and there were some good podiums, but really all of those performances were diluted by the fact that we know that team was cheating, so we don't really know what his, his capability abilities were if the engine yeah. was running a legal fuel map that said i think the comments kind of dumb in the sense that and again i don't want to compromise our ability to potentially have somebody from red bull join us on the show but ultimately <laughs> i just i don't know what the logic is so he sits the year out and then what you know what's what's the guarantee he's going to have a seat next year there's so much young driver talent in the pipeline and entering the sport what's the guarantee there's going to be a seat for him especially a seat at what could potentially be a competitive team and again i think from from vettel's perspective Aston Martin was still a great fit. I, I don't think he nor anyone at Aston Martin understood what the impact of the floor changes were going to be on a uh, low rake setup like this car is. That said, I think the issues aren't the car and I still feel the issues are perhaps psychological with, with Vettel at this point, but I don't think sitting out the season would have changed any of that. And even if he did sit out the season, there's nothing to suggest his options wouldn't have been a Haas or an Alfa Romeo. I think he did the right thing for his career, which is yeah. there's a team that's competitive and one's, was winning podiums and won a race, although they hadn't won the race at the point that he signed with the team, but they clearly appeared to be on this upward trajectory. Like it seemed smart. And if he hadn't taken that opportunity and he had sat the year out, he probably would have been criticized into the future for not having taken this opportunity. And again, if he passed on this Aston Martin opportunity, that's probably going to negate his ability to have any leverage in future negotiations with any other team. Like you passed on the opportunity to go to a Mercedes powered team that has this wealthy owner that's investing heavily. Like the, the idea of him sitting out a year just seems illogical to me. It's totally illogical. Well, this also comes from the mouth of the guy that wanted to have a COVID party for his drivers last year. You know, so I mean, take it yeah. with a pinch of salt. But totally. I can't help but think based on the his recent record in the past couple of years that if Sebastian had sat the year out, that he would have disappeared from the radar pretty quick. I mean, let, let's face I totally it. Agree. Let, let's face it. When it comes to professional sports, memories are short. And I think in 
Formula One, they're even shorter. And I, I think just from that, it would have been, I, I think it could have been the proverbial nail in the coffin to his career. I mean, it was a, a, the right opportunity at the right time. And like you say, he would have, you know, he would have left so many questions there. You had that opportunity to go to Mercedes powered team with uh, Lawrence Stroll and all his money. Why yeah. didn't you take that? And instead you sat a year out and then the best you could do was a Haas or an Alfa Romeo or something like that. Like, why are you even coming back? I think you've so, just, you've, and I don't mean to interject, but I think you make a great point, right? Like he's different than a Fernando Alonso. Fernando's hungry to race. He's yeah. older. He leaves Formula One, but he's still competing. He's still self-promoting. A lot of these younger drivers are on social media. They've got marketing tie-ups. They're, they, they're still visually present. Sebastian mm-hmm. Vettel has no social media. He's, he's involved in virtually no marketing or tie-ups. He's not competing or involved in any other kinds of motorsport. He doesn't have any really obvious, um, I would say, interest outside of the sport. That's all fine. This isn't a criticism, but I think your point is absolutely right that if he left the sport for a year, he vanishes. He won't be at the track. He won't be giving quotes. He won't be giving interviews. He won't be taking that Nico Rosberg approach, which is I'm going to get in the booth and I'm going to get on every podcast and be as involved as possible. I think Mm -hmm. he vanishes and then he loses all of his leverage to negotiate a future deal, especially with the young driver talent pipeline that we've got coming into the sport right now. I will take a younger talented driver who's 20 years old and I'm going to pay a million and a half a year over a 35-year-old driver who's had a couple of tough seasons and is going to expect 15 to 20 million pounds a year. Yeah, that's why I think the Fernando Alonso story is especially interesting because, I mean, he's been out of Formula One for the past couple of years, but he's been racing in, in in different series, right? I mean, he's won Le Mans a couple of times. So it's not like he's been sitting at home playing Xbox or something like that. And he, like you say, he still has that thirst. He still has that drive. And it's unfortunate that he had that uh, that break issue at Bahrain because he was running pretty competitive. I, I was, I must admit, and I'm going to eat a little bit of crow here, that I expected him not to do as well in that race that uh, that, that he did. Ultimately, he didn't finish. So who's to say whether or not he would have um, finished in the points. But the fact is that he was running higher in the race than I honestly expected. And it really made me think, okay, well, maybe there is something to this Fernando comeback. I mean, we still have 22 races to run, so we can really only judge this at the end of the season. But initially, I thought it looked uh, really good. And also, when you add to that, to, uh, to the fact that he had that cycling accident in the off season when he admitted that, you know, that, well, I mean, he the pain in the jaw and everything like that. So there were some things that were stacked against him. And I, I totally agree. I think that if uh, Fernando, or sorry, if if uh, Sebastian takes that year out, I think he just disappears. You know that that's one thing. Maybe that's uh, you know very much like his uh, his uh, idol Michael Schumacher, and I think that Schumacher would have done the same thing. I mean, obviously that uh, story turned out a little bit more tragic and unfortunate, but. He always said that when he would be done with Formula One, he was just going to walk away from the sport and, you know, that that would be it. He'd just kind of cut ties. You wouldn't see him sitting on the on the pit wall or doing um, or in the stands or doing, you know, like the Nico Rosberg thing. And, you know, some of these things that you see, like former drivers doing in TV and media and stuff like that. And I think Sebastian, I think that once he disappears, I think he's uh, gone for good. But just kind of sticking with that story, he says that uh, he's not at home in that car yet. He does not feel comfortable with it. And 
you know, I, I guess it goes back to the fact that there was this uh, you know, decrease in the amount of time for winter testing. It's it's not something that uh, that that uh, is limited to, to him alone, but it uh, certainly was obvious in Bahrain that this is a guy that has not gotten used to the car. And when you look compared, to, you know, even when you look compared to his teammate Lance Stroll, I thought that Lance looked a lot better in that car. And obviously, he's been with that team for a couple of years, but still. The, the 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 low rake car, the, just like the, the the Mercedes, they're having issues with that. I thought that Lance looked a lot better in that car than Sebastian did. So this really comes as no surprise to me to to hear Sebastian saying this that he's he's not comfortable in it. Uh, you know, already well, we're what uh, uh, about five weeks since testing started, something like that. I think this is a clear indication that winter testing will be different moving forward. And obviously this is a transition year and winter testing was cut down dramatically, partly I think because of the challenges associated with COVID protocols, but principally because the sport is looking for ways to save money. We don't have in-season testing. We have a very brief testing session after Yas Marina at the end of the season. And now winter testing went from eight to six to three days. I think nobody would have benefited more from six days of winter testing than Sebastian Vettel. But ultimately, and I'm not a race car driver and I'm not a Formula One driver. For somebody that's been in the sport now for more than a decade and has won four titles, how much time does he need to get familiar with a car relative to some of these less talented or younger drivers, right? Like this is a sport that he's been involved with. The tires are, they're not the same, but they're relatively similar. So he should be able to understand grip. He has an expert knowledge of all of the tracks that they're racing at with the exception of a few. But even last year when they went back to places like Turkey, that was an advantage for him because unlike a lot of the younger drivers, he'd been there, he'd raced there, he yep. competed there, he'd won there. So he's got all of these kind of advantages over the other drivers. So I, you know, I'm going to give him a couple of weeks. Ultimately, he didn't get that great winter testing. I'll give him that. Uh, there was some bad luck. He didn't qualify well. There was the yellow flag issue. He runs into the back of Alcon. It was a terrible weekend. And I think he's going to, he would assume most of the, the blame for his performance so far. I'll give him a couple of weekends, but ultimately if if this is what he looks like going into June, I don't think he. I don't think he's going to be back next year. I think ultimately Lawrence Stroll will cut his losses and ultimately ultimately move on. And that would almost be better because I would really hate to see <clears throat> a Mercedes style end to his career that we saw with with uh, Michael Schumacher. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the Michael Jordan with the Washington Wizards. Michael. <laughs> Michael Schumacher with the, with Mercedes, and then ultimately, of course, uh, potentially Sebastian Vettel with the Aston Martin team. And the other thing that's really troubling, too, is just from a legacy perspective, because we talk so much about it. On the one hand, I think a lot of people have conveniently forgotten about Michael Schumacher's couple of years with the Mercedes team. But don't forget that almost the moment he leaves that team, so he concludes his career at the end of 2012, Lewis steps in in 2013. They finished second in the constructors the first year that Michael Schumacher was gone. And part of that would have been potentially continued evolution of the car. But what's to say that he himself at that stage in his career and at his age wasn't holding that team back. And when you brought in some young blood and a younger driver like Lewis Hamilton, he was just able to get more out of that car. So ultimately, we both learned from Drive to Survive that Lawrence Stroll appears to be a ruthless businessman. <laughs> and he's not going to wait around too long. Dude, I'm scared that Lawrence might come into this podcast right now and fire both of us. You know, that that's how intimidated <laughs> I am by Lawrence Stroll. 
but yeah, you know, it, it is interesting. You know, just for, like you're saying about the legacy issue, just uh, for for both of those drivers. Uh, when when you say Michael Schumacher, when when I think of all that he did, I automatically think of Ferrari, and then I think of Benetton, and then to well, I mean, the Jordan was a very small, very abbreviated part to his career, but certainly that uh, debut that he had at Spa was 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 legendary. And it, it, it's funny, I kind of go down, but. I find that uh, Michael's time at Mercedes was such just, it's a footnote for me. And it's, you know, having the benefit now of almost a decade since he raced his last race in Formula One, that it it's it, it still does, does not really percolate to the top of my consciousness. It's, it's really interesting like that. But it would be kind of sad for Sebastian in a way. But at, at the end of the day, I mean, he ultimately has control over his career and uh, only he knows when the time is right to walk away. That's why I think it's interesting uh, to, to watch Lewis. I mean, at the age that he's at, you know, going to be what, turning 36 this year. I mean, he still looks like he's on the top of his game. It's going to be it's going to be fun to watch. I mean, when, when it came down to just uh, between him and Max with very similar cars, and we, we know obviously there's issues with the W12 just to see him. I mean, that, that was all Lewis that won that race uh, in the end. I mean, when he's telling Bono to, to basically to shut it so he can concentrate, that was all driver really just trying to you know physically handle and, and, and take that car by the scruff of the neck and throw it around and, and, and take that victory. Anyways, I want to keep on the to- topic of uh, Lewis Hamilton, but uh, we're late for a break here, so we'll do that. When we come back, I want to talk about sneaky super spy Lewis Hamilton. And we'll do that in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And yes, we are going to stick with uh, Lewis uh, Hamilton. And I thought this was a, a really kind of a, a funny story. And uh, this one, I'm, I'm not even really... It, well, let's just let's just face it. This came up on uh, on motorsport.com and this was real clickbait. If uh, if you ask me, it was a real funny title. Uh, anyways, uh, this is uh, one of uh, Mercedes' uh, former uh, engineers, and he was uh, talking about uh, Lewis and just his attention uh, to detail. And this fellow's name is uh, Philippa Brandel, and he worked on uh, Lewis's car up until the end of 2019. And he was on service uh, TV over the the, the weekend at uh, Bahrain a couple of weeks back and he was a really full of uh, praise and a lot of good things about uh, about Lewis Hamilton and I'll just read the quote because I think it's it's really interesting he says quote Lewis is a super spy he looks at everything very closely for example there was once a moment prior to the podium room where the drivers were having a drink he noticed that another racing suit had fewer cables the point is that you where you can save weight because really every detail counts in Formula One so he gave us the feedback that the other team had shorter wiring harness and a smaller plug and really everything that's how you can save just one gram is important. He looks at details like that, and that's what we implemented, end quote. So, I mean, ultimate clickbait, and I don't think that's one of these sort of like things that Lewis Hamilton's kind of like sneakily, you know, standing up, uh, you know, walking into the Ferrari garage and, you know, accidentally takes a couple of pictures on his iPhone or something like that. But I think that this one would have been a little bit more... 
I think it would have been better if they kind of framed it uh, the, the way the sort of the, the mentality that you need to be and the focus that you have to have to be a successful Formula One driver. And I think this shows more about the the, the, the mentality that Lewis Hamilton has and just, just how focused he is on every single uh, little detail and where you can find an advantage and just trying to exploit that advantage. I mean, he wasn't, uh, you know, like going back to that uh, Ferrari scandal where, you know, somebody he knew or family member had like a, you know, blueprints or you know factory drawings of like a rival car and you know, took it down to staples like hey, could you print this off for me yeah it wasn't anything uh, that nefarious but uh, I, I thought it was an interesting quote just uh, just showing how focused he is i would encourage all of our listeners especially the uh the drive to survive generation to watch the drivers at the conclusion of a race at park Ferme. so i i think one of the things we probably don't appreciate enough is how great the teams are at keeping their cars away from prying eyes. What we see on TV and what we see on photos is typically all the rival teams see as well. Even when they're in garages next to each other, they go to monumental lengths to keep mm-hmm the other teams away from their cars. So when the cars are in park Ferme, so, you know, right at the end of the race, you've got the first, second, third place finishers. That's often the closest the drivers of competing teams will ever get to their car. So we've always seen, you know, Sebastian Vettel's got his neck crooked over. And he's yes. Looking in the, he's looking Great in the point. cockpit and he's yeah. pressing on some of the panels. Lewis does the same thing. The reason they do that is because that's really the only unfettered access that anyone on their team has to a rival car. Now, the for the better part of the last seven years, it's really just Lewis been looking at a Bottas's car or Rosberg's car and a Ferrari and or a Red Bull. But again, it's something that's really curious to watch. And I'm not surprised, right? Because again, it, this this seems very clickbaity and it was a minor change that they allude to here. But ultimately, the access that the drivers get is something that everyone in their garage would kill to have. They would kill to be able to poke their head into the cockpit of the car. And it's one of the reasons that teams spend a significant amount of money paying photographers to sit trackside and photograph the other cars. And it's one of the reasons why what you'll often see in shakedown tests during the winter is very, very different than the car that shows up at winter testing. And even the car that you'll see on the last day of winter testing, or even the car that you you see show up in Australia, because teams go to such huge lengths to hide their car and their design and their changes because they don't want them to be cloned by other teams. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great point about the you make about the photographers. I'm going to take that one step further because we've all seen these pictures over the years where some of the teams have uh, sort of employed like these zebra stripes that they put on the cars because when you get that sort of that that contrasting black and white stripes on the car that it actually it doesn't photograph as well. So you lose some of the depth on it. So perhaps uh, your your Mercedes or your Ferrari and it's uh, you, you, you're really wondering what your rival is doing. You send some photographer out to trackside to try and get some pictures of of their, uh, their their side pods or maybe the front wing or something like that. And, you know, it just, uh, it's, it's a countermeasure that, that, you know, and it blows me away that uh, that somebody in Formula One actually thought, uh, well, realized that this was a problem. It's like, okay, well, they got out there, they took pictures of uh, wh- whatever it is uh, before we really wanted them to get uh, a good look at it uh, during the race uh, or uh, during winter testing when we have to have like everything in its final, uh, final form. And uh, the 
that they, they came up with this uh, idea for like this zebra camouflage to, uh, uh, you know, to whatever you want to call it. But it really does happen all, all the time. And it uh, you you made such a great point how they you when you see these guys after race in Park Fermi, well, you'll see them looking around and craning their necks and looking into, I mean, <laughs> they do a terrible job. I mean, if they're trying to be subtle, they're not being subtle at all because you, you can see them quite uh, quite plainly uh, looking at, uh, at at the other cars and they, they've all done it at some point and it, it really is uh, kind of cool but it it, uh, it is exactly like uh, like you say uh, it's it's when you know they're just trying to get an advantage and I think that's why that whole uh, you know, going back to that whole racing point saga we were talking about earlier in the show is like when they came up all these rolling protests, sure, it was like the copycat pink Mercedes, but how did they focus in on the brake ducts on that car were the same as the 2019 uh, Mercedes as it was on the RP20 last year? I mean, that just kind of blows my mind. It's just like... I feel that somebody at uh, somewhere at one of these teams said, okay, we'll go and look over every inch of this car and don't come back to me until you've found something. And I, I just, I, I see like a group of people in a room going over video, going over photos of, of both uh, the, I guess it would have been the W10, the Mercedes, the 2019 car, last year's uh, Racing Point RP20. And then find, oh, brake ducks. Oh, we got them on something. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there is there is spying going on in Formula One. But uh, that uh, I, I that that one, like I say, clickbait. That is not spying in my mind. Uh, that that's more Lewis just being uh, really, really uh, thorough. Anyways, I want to take one final break here on the show, Mark. And when I come back, I'm going to start talking about uh, the sprint races. And uh, there's been a little bit more uh, discussion about that. And we'll do that in uh, just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And that was a little bit of a short segment, but we got a bunch of uh, topics that I want to go over and I want to devote enough time with them and did want to break off uh, halfway through. So the this blows me away, too, because uh, they've um, really sorted this one out, the whole sprint race idea. And this, uh, to me, went through with almost minimal opposition. It's all these things, just like the new Concord Agreement, the cost cap, all these emergency regulations that they they approved about this time last year. And maybe I'm just an old man that just uh, is stuck living in the past <laughs> in what was probably a, a very uh, enjoyable part of, uh, of my life. But I, I always go back to, you know, the years gone by that every time that there was a discussion to the rules, it was automatically protested by Ferrari that would immediately threaten to pull out of the sport and set up their own rival series. And it would just be, it would be venom. It would be, it, there'd be a lot of acrimony. There'd be a lot of bickering and fighting. And all these major things that have been pushed through in the last 12 months, and these just aren't little things, it just absolutely, I, I find it staggering. I, I, I just, I can't think of any other word to describe it. It's absolutely amazing. And this uh, the sprint race thing, this is nothing new. This has been on the discussion for, for a little while. I mean, they were looking at uh, some ways to improve the race weekends. I'm glad that uh, they're, they're not messing around with the, the, the qualifying like we had that disastrous format a couple of years ago. And the teams have actually agreed to a financial package uh, with this, and uh, it's I think it's 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 really interesting that they've actually done this. They've uh, they've uh, they well, they're, I mean, we're going to have what three races this year where they're actually going to trial this, and the, the fact that the teams that have agreed to it, they've uh, agreed to a financial package. It really it's amazing. I, I, I find it difficult to explain it more because I can just not compute all these things. Because like I say, I'm an old man stuck in the past. You make such a great point about that 
that Ferrari story. And it's probably something that a lot of our listeners don't appreciate that change management has always been a monumental problem in in Formula One. You could have nine of 10 teams that were super enthusiastic about an idea, but inevitably Ferrari would be opposed and they have a veto and they would veto it and the sport would suffer or it gets pushed through. And to your point, Ferrari would threaten to leave the sport and start their own rival series. It, It makes you wonder really how poorly built the previous Concord agreements were and really (laughs) how toxic Bernie's presence was in the sport in terms of building alliance and cohesion. Did I not make that joke? You started to jump in that uh, that that these previous like discussions about the Concord agreement, was it not uh, Game of Thrones, Bernie Ecclestone style? Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. So you're you're absolutely right. Like it, it's astonishing that they've achieved as much as they have in the last couple of years, and it's probably a byproduct of a couple of things, right? It's one, the fact that I, I think <clears throat> the teams genuinely have some appreciation for what Liberty's trying to do. I think Liberty's being far more open and transparent with them than. Bernie's group ever was. Um, but I also think that they see that there's writing on the vault wall and that the sport needs to evolve dramatically to continue to retain and attract new viewers. And they've done some really great things, right? Like the whole drive to survive thing would never have happened under Bernie. Their explosion in social media would never have happened. So they're doing some really great things. And I think the team see that and they respect that. I, I think this was a bit of a surprise because it happened so quickly. And the fact that it's even being negotiated in season like this would never have happened before like no if it was 10 no. years ago it would have taken three years to get to the point but the fact that they were able to negotiate it in season speaks to the fact that the teams probably have a great deal of respect for liberty but they're also probably in desperation mode right like every one of these teams hemorrhaged cash last year liberty hemorrhaged cash and if it brings some eyeballs to the tv and they can generate some additional revenue from advertising and from tv money and you can get some additional subscribers on f1 tv pro totally worth it i think the only the real only opposition that teams had potentially to these sprint races and again we heard all the feedback and the comments from the drivers etc cetera, etc cetera, but i think ultimately their biggest concern is hey we're operating under this super strict cap this is going to cost us money and if we damage a car how are we going to pay for that without compromising our spending cap and i think ultimately there seems to have been an agreement struck between liberty and the teams on how they'll be compensated for competing in this races it's actually significantly less money than i thought it was potentially going to be i think they struck an agreement of five hundred thousand dollars right, to yeah. compete in these races plus yeah. some additional allowance and some some cap relief and i think that they're going to be receiving that $500,000 lump sum payment, but they'll also get relief of $500,000 on their spending cap. Um, So there's a couple of pieces there, but ultimately it's not a lot of money. And if that's all it took, let's, let's do it. I'm excited. Well, it's funny, you know, like 500,000, I mean, to, to you or me, that's an absolute fortune, but in the grand scheme of thing, 500 grand seems almost like chump change in Formula One. So you're right, they're going to, each team's going to get an extra $500,000 for the extra three races and the cost cap is going to be raised by an extra 500 grand as well. And this is just to, to offset things that if there's a damage to one of the cars or something like that, that they're, they're not taking an extra financial hit. Uh, you know, it, it's just uh, sort of to, to mitigate any uh, anything like that and prevent them from being overly penalized. And I think it's a great, uh, great move. I think it's a I, I'm really surprised that they um, 
like you say, that uh, that they managed to push it through in season. Because you're, you're very correct that in the old days, in, in bygone era, in, in the bygone era of Bernie Ecclestone, it, it really would have taken a couple of years. That That is not, uh, that is not really a, a, like uh, an exaggeration by any stretch of the means. And uh, I think, like you say, I think that really indicates the, the respect that they have uh, for Liberty. Because I remember that uh, just uh, even towards the end of uh, Bernie's uh, reign there, that uh, just how he was just really still just trying to dig in and, and control everything that even something as simple as just a, a short video taken in the pit lane from one of the teams and posted to social media was just such a no-no because it just violated all the broadcast rights and stuff like that. And it's just like, well, how are you going to connect with any normal modern fan who's sitting there going through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or or, or whatever now? I mean, I don't expect uh, that uh, if uh, Bernie was still around that I expect him to, you know, be making TikToks or anything like that. But certainly, I mean, the the, the fact that once he was out of the picture and, and, and Liberty came in, and obviously they're a media-based uh, company, that's what they know. And they, they know how to connect with people. They know how to package this thing. And just the, the, the fact that there is like a decent presence in social media is such revelation. I, I, I'm just so happy that I can pick up my phone now. I can go on my computer and I, I can do whatever. I can go to whatever platform of my choice and I can find some new fresh content uh, from, from the official Formula One channels. I think that's wonderful. I just want to add as well, and I everything you've just added is beautiful context. I, I think it's important for our newer listeners to understand <clears throat> that Prior to four or five years ago, despite the fact that it was 2016, Formula One had virtually zero social media presence, and it was a conscious decision, and it was marching orders from Bernie Eccleston. And what was even crazier is that if drivers, for instance, Lewis Hamilton, if they posted Formula One-related content on their social media, whether it was Instagram, Facebook, or whatever it was, they were getting cease and desist letters from, from Formula One. And and. Lewis jokes that he still has a stack of these that that people like Bernie were like, you are in the pit garage or you are wearing your uniform. That needs to be paid content. We don't give that away. And it's not like they had an alternative because they weren't selling anything through social media or packaging anything up through distribution channels anyways. But he was fiercely protective of that content. And Liberty is obviously far more relaxed. And it's perfect because it helps them engage with this younger demo. But if Bernie was still in charge, I think Formula One would be rapidly approaching its death because one, Drive to Survive would never have happened. They wouldn't be connecting with younger drivers. They would be alienating the younger dri- or the younger fans. They would be alienating the younger drivers that they have. Like the timing and everything just worked. And I give all the credit in the world to Liberty for what they've been able to do. And my fear with Liberty when they came in was I thought they were going to come in. They were going to cost cut the heck out of this, cut it down to the bare bones, kind of ink some big TV deals and spin it off. And they may still spin it off potentially and look to make a profit, but they won't have done that without making serious long-term sustainable um, changes to the sport that benefit the fans and the drivers and the teams. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, just while you're talking there, I've just had this sort of image kind of flashing through my mind that, you know, people in our generation, we've kind of, uh, we've come up with like the flip phones, and then the first generation smartphones, and then the creation of, and, and um, 
I guess, the adoption of social media and then the improvement of social media to the point where it is now that we've, you know, it, it's something that we've kind of uh, grown along with. But, you know, you go to the, say, the, you know, the, the, the generation of Formula One fans that are in their 20s, where we're 20 plus X, you know, I'm not going to give anything away here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, when, when you're younger, and I mean, that's just sort of something that's been there for a significant uh, point, you know, point of your, or, uh, you know, portion of your life. That's uh, completely different. I mean, we've kind of uh, watched social media evolve over the past 10 or 15 years. But I mean, if you're 18 or 20, I mean, you've that's all you know. I mean, my kids now, I mean, uh, my oldest is 12. I mean, something like Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, that's that's just there now. It's uh, it's just something that you do. Whereas for us, it's something we kind of grew into and watched it evolve. I mean, I mean, some of us. Did you ever have a MySpace page? I, I didn't, you know, that, that I, I mean, we were obviously around, but uh, I never really got into it that, that far back, but it really is a crucial component in, in it, it. Social media is just a part of life now. And to not be able to pick up my phone now and, and go to the platform of my choice and enjoy some of this Formula One uh, content, either from the teams or Formula One or the drivers themselves, it just seems so foreign and, and just weird. And it just makes it more relatable when, when you can see <clears throat> you know, the drivers doing their things, you know, it, it just, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's refreshing. I, I think that's the best way I can put it. It's just refreshing to see all this, uh, the, this content you wouldn't have seen if Bernie Ecclestone or, or somebody had taken over from him and kind of perpetuated that same model. It just would not exist. How did we get onto this angle? What story were we talking about? I really don't remember, but uh, oh, <laughs> so we were races, talking just sprint races. Yeah, it was the sprint races and just uh, all about the like the cost cap and all like the bickering and the you know the the, the previous kind of like uh, era of uh, Formula One. But yeah, I mean, talk about uh, t- t- taking the or going off a tangent. But let's uh, get away from uh, Bernie Ecclestone and leave him in the past uh, where you know he probably should be, and let's uh, move along to or move back to um, Doctor Helmut Marco. And uh, he made a comment uh, this week that he believes that uh, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen fighting at Bahrain in the opening round of the season are in what he calls a class of their own. And I know it was only one race. I know we talked about it in the the, the post-race show that we did after the Grand Prix. But if this is the level that these two guys are at right now, and this is what we're going to see in 2021, that it could be an epic season. You know, it's, it's funny, as much as I disagreed with Helmut Marko earlier today, and in fact, I called one of his comments stupid, I think he's, <laughs> I think he's absolutely right here. I, I think, and, and I don't know why it took me so long to come to uh, an understanding of what Max's capabilities are that I think everyone else kind of realized back at Spain in 2016, that he's a phenomenal driver. And the, the reality is he's been partnered with Daniel Ricardo. He's been partnered with Gasly. He's been partnered with Albon. He's now been partnered with Sergio Perez. And the delta between him, and less so with Ricardo, but the delta with him and the subsequent drivers is just unfathomable. Like, if you were to look at the rest of the field, I don't think there's been a delta between any two teammates as significant as there has been between Max and whoever he's been driving with. And you hear all these kind of stories about, well, the car's built for Max, the car's built for Max. Like, I don't know how 
how much a car can be built for a driver. And even if it is, these are professional athletes, they're professional drivers, and they should still be able to adapt their driving style to the car that they're fortunate enough to be sitting in ultimately. And I think what we saw at Bahrain at the season opening race was fantastic. And I would love to obviously see more of that. And I think what it also proved as well is it really helps to calibrate our understandings of where Bottas sits in terms of the ecosystem that is the Formula One driver landscape. And he is on an entirely different plane. And I'm not saying that in a complimentary way, but he's (laughs) an entirely different world than these two drivers are. And I think if we see more of what we saw in Bahrain over the course of the season, and it's tight at the end of the year, I think the ratings bonanza that the sport is going to enjoy will be astronomical. And I think it's probably the best thing that can happen to the sport, both shifting into the the new generation, but also really great because I think the sport's desperate to recover revenue that was lost last season. And like I hinted at a couple of minutes ago, the sport hemorrhaged cash last year. And if they can put in a really competitive season this year, they can pack those, those racetracks in the back half of the year and they can really drive up TV ratings in the back half. That's that's a good news story for everyone. But I I totally agree with Marco. Ultimately, it's really difficult to delineate or kind of identify the true capabilities of the drivers because the cars they all drive are so different. But I don't think that anyone who watches Formula One regularly or any analyst of the sport would argue that these two drivers don't exist on a different plane than everyone else in the field currently. Yeah, they absolutely are. They they really are you know, at the at the pinnacle of uh, of of Formula One at the moment. And I think what's really interesting is uh, just like you alluded to just now is that uh, you, you have Max paired now with uh, Perez. Obviously, we've got the same pairing at uh, Mercedes that we've seen for the past uh, several years. But I think if that delta between Max and Sergio is smaller than it's been with the the other teammates uh, over the past couple of years, then it not only just makes the um, uh, the, the drivers' championship uh, fascinating because if we can see Lewis and Max fighting for it all season long, that's going to be wonderful. But if we can see Sergio uh, fight for the podiums and higher points paying positions, then that's going to have implications uh, for the constructors' uh, championship as well. I, I know he had some hiccups at uh, Bahrain a couple of weeks ago. He didn't qualify as high as that he would have like to. He had those gremlins, which made him uh, start from the pit lane. And I can't help but wonder that even though he he didn't qualify all that great, if he didn't have that pit lane start, how close would he been to the podium at the end of the race? So that really adds another dynamic uh, to it. I don't know if uh, it's going to take a while to see what that delta between Max and Sergio is, but certainly that delta between Max and Lewis appears to be uh, pretty close. And if those two cars, the Red Bull and the Mercedes, are, are almost uh, you know, evenly matched, which it appears to be, uh, at least based on the first race of the season, it, it, it'll just make it so exciting. And I think uh, th- I've said this uh, before, like I, I was, I felt a little bit, I don't want to see cheated, but I was really hoping Max c- could beat Lewis. Not that I'm not a fan of uh, Lewis ha- Hamilton, but just uh, to the fact that I wanted to see Max really pull that uh, victory away from from Lewis. I mean, ultimately I think it came down to the strategy that uh, that Mercedes employed. I know that um, uh, Red Bull gave Max that phenomenal sub 2 second stop for his last pit stop. What was it? Like 1.9 seconds or something absolutely insane, but the thing was that uh, Mercedes weren't quite as quick, but they made that like their timing for their pit stops was just that much more uh better time than Red Bull's and their strategy is always uh, pretty good and that's ultimately what it came down to and then 
and Max had his one chance and he blew it and then he had to give the position back. But it was exciting. And I think at the end of the the, the day that even though I wanted to see Max pull that with that victory away from Lewis was even at the end of the race was like, yeah, I'm still okay with Lewis winning this race because he wasn't 30 seconds down the road. He, this was a hard fought. This was a well-deserved uh, victory and he came out on top. And I want to see this again two weeks from now, three weeks from now, whatever it is. And I want to see, I want to see part two, part three, part four, all the way part 23 to uh, to the point where we get to Yas Marina, in no, well, not November, but December, right? I, I also firmly believe after that first race weekend that there is a very strong likelihood, maybe even a probability that even if Max doesn't win the driver's title this year, I think there's a very strong probability that Red Bull could win the constructor's title. The The reality is based on think on what we've seen of Bottas the last couple of years and even this last race weekend, I, I have every reason to think that Sergio could reliability being a significant factor here. I, I think if Max can enjoy better reliability than last year and Sergio can enjoy great reliability because that's always a strength of Mercedes that if, if they're bulletproof, do, I, bulletproof. I, yeah, totally. I, I just, I, I think that they could potentially displace Bottas and you could have a situation where maybe Lewis wins the driver's title, but Red Bull drivers finish second and third and clinch the constructor's title. And I think they would be very happy with that. And I think Honda would be very happy with that. And again, it's early. We'll see mm-hmm. how the how the season shapes and the storylines continue to unfold. But I think early on, I'm far more enthusiastic and optimistic about Red Bull with those two drivers than I was last year. I was very, very bullish on Albon. And Mm -hmm. I think all of the concerns that people had in the off season played out during the season in a very long form, torturous way that was painful for us to watch and probably equally as painful for him to experience. But I, I, I'm very, very optimistic about this team. And to your point, as much as Sergio kind of struggled a little bit during winter testing and he struggled during qualifying, starting from the pit lane and finishing fifth is an absurd accomplishment, an yeah. absurd accomplishment, and that should not be dismissed. Yeah, absolutely not. I've got a couple of uh, replies to that. I'm going to get back to them, but I realized that uh, I took our last break a little bit too early, so this is going to be our final break, and we'll do that, and I've got a couple of thoughts on that, and we'll do that in uh, just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, there was one thing that immediately popped into my mind uh, when you're saying, okay, well, maybe the Red Bull drivers can displace Valtteri and maybe they end up uh, winning the drivers or sorry, the uh, the, the constructors uh, championship. That is a possibility. And I can fully see something that Lewis goes on to win the championship. Mercedes doesn't win the constructors, but Red Bull does. And they would be ecstatic about that. I, I no, no doubt about that. And the first thing that popped into my mind is that I don't want to say that Lewis would be disappointed in winning the world championship, but I can fully see or picture in my mind Lewis saying, well, it's great to have this personal uh, achievement uh, for myself, but I'm really disappointed that the team did not win the constructors championship because, you know, I've already got seven, you know, okay, I've, I've set the record now, but I could see him maybe saying that even though it's eight, even though it's, you know, he's, he's the, he's now officially the goat that uh, he, he would, I, I think it would mean less to him somehow just on the fact that you know, just the way that that team is and how focused they are and just how excited they always seem. It doesn't matter what year it is, but they always seem collectively so ecstatic to win a race, to win a championship. And I think that there would be this collective 
disappointment throughout the team from the drivers right down to the mechanics and the office staff back at uh, at the factory that that they weren't able to do it so it really could be a fascinating situation to to, to watch and I don't think that would be I, I think as fans I think we get more invested in the drivers championship because we all of our our favorite drivers we're Max fans or we're Sebastian fans or we're Lewis fans or whoever right and I think we get invested more in that uh, in, in that part of it but I think when it comes to Formula One itself, I think that for the teams that, yeah, they'd be excited if their driver won a championship. But I think that if you're the team, I I think collectively you would probably be more excited of winning the Constructors Championship because that's something that everybody's contributed to. Whereas the Drivers' Championship, yeah, it's not completely down to the driver because there's a lot of things that go into delivering a winning car for uh, for, for that guy. But still... It uh, you really made me think, <laughs> and this is something I'm gonna. I, I know for sure I'm gonna be watching over the, the the coming races. There's a different way to spin that conversation, though. And oh, that, the way no you kidding! Can spin it is less as a collective failure, but more as an accomplishment in the sense that hey, we have this Red Bull team that has been building towards something for eight years, had partnered with Honda, and Honda had invested untold fortunes into that power unit and they were surging and despite all of that despite the fact that we're in kind of this transitionary year towards the new generation of cars despite all of that we were still able to fend them off and lewis is still such a talented driver Mm -hmm. that he still carried us to a driver's title but i i think you're right like I think it's probably really hard for a team to collectively celebrate a driver's title in the context of having won seven or eight of them because the reality is a constructor's title, as you suggested, implies contributions from everybody within the organization. If it's a driver's title... Think people over back at the factory may celebrate, people in marketing might celebrate, but there's a lot of people within that team that are focused on one car mm-hmm. and one driver and have minimal interaction with Lewis, right? Like if it's a constructor's title, it's something everyone can celebrate. Uh, Bottas's team can celebrate it, his engineer, his mechanics, they can celebrate. But if it's just Lewis winning a driver's title, there's a segment of that organization that doesn't celebrate. They may nod and smile and be happy it was a driver on their team, but they would be equally disappointed that it wasn't them that did that. So it'll be interesting to see what the narrative is. Is the narrative that, hey, they failed and they cracked and Red Bull surged? Or was it that Red Bull was just this overpowering super team and Hamilton, despite everything, still managed to claw his way to a driver's title? I cannot wait to see how it plays out. And again, ultimately, maybe none of this comes to fruition and they run, Mercedes runs away with both titles, which we've seen the last seven years. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Very, very, uh, very curious to see how this will play out. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny you should mention that uh, too. That uh, you, you basically do have two sides to every garage, right? And you go back to the Hamilton Rosberg era, and uh, Nico was always, "Well, how's the other car doing?" Or is it Lewis always used to refer to the other car? You know, there, there was just so much hatred and dislike between those two that at one point they couldn't even refer to each other by name. So, if if Nico was still around and he'd finished second fiddle to to Lewis all these years, do you? Do you think that he would be excited this year if Lewis won, you know, that or wins that eighth championship and they they miss out on the the, the constructors? No, he definitely would not be uh, happy about that. But you know, it, it is interesting, like you say that uh, that that Honda. I, we we've talked about it before. Like all these things are just lining up. Like the 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 stars are lining up for for Red Bull and that opportunity. 
to win a world championship. That that window is now open, and they've thrown everything at it from the, the point of getting a solid driver lineup, a good second driver to complement Max. They've uh, got a good car. They've got a good engine, and they've just they, they've they've been building to it exactly like you say over the past uh, eight years. Uh, Honda says that the new uh, um, uh, engine that they have in the car for this year is a big uh, aero boost uh, for for the Red Bull. And you know, there's so many different things that uh, they're they're doing. I mean, the 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 power unit is more compact, and it's it's just amazing that just the amount of resources, the amount of energy, and the amount of focus that they that they are collectively putting into this RB16B to really deliver a championship in, in one form or another. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I just I think that fairy tale is is curious to watch because I feel like in some ways Honda was a little bit shortchanged on their rapid evacuation from the sport at the end of 2008. I, I think that for reasons of optics and to keep their analysts happy, they had to depart the sport when they maybe didn't want to. And I think it was tough for them to sit back and watch Braun GP win a title using their factory and their resources <laughs> and much of their people capital. Yeah. I would feel really good for Honda if they were able to turn this into a fairy tale of a season and win a title, regardless of which one it potentially is. Yep. I think that would be such a, a fantastic story. And I, I I just find Honda to be a likable brand, um, yeah, me a too. likable yep. company, if you know what I mean. And yep. I also love their association with the fact that they've been able to help promote some really talented young open wheel racing drivers in Japan. And I I don't know. I just, yeah, I'm getting caught up already in the fairy tale that could be this season. And it's so, so, so early, but I would love to see that. Yeah, well, you know, Franz Tost is the team principal at Alpha Tauri, the sister team to Red Bull. He believes that uh, the the Honda power unit is now what he says, very, very close uh, to Mercedes. And it, it really, it is amazing when you fast forward five, six years to where they were when they came back into Formula One in 2015 with McLaren. I mean, this is not even the same discussion. I mean, when they came in, they were so far back on development compared to Renault, compared to Ferrari, compared to Mercedes. They, they were just, um, you know, they weren't even in the same league. And McLaren, sadly, they suffered for it. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're, they're obviously in a good position now because they partnered up with the Mercedes again. But it is interesting now when you fast forward that five or six years into the future from 2015, that uh, that that there really is not that much of a, a difference or a deficit uh, between running the, the, the either one of these uh, two engines. And I think that's what really makes it uh, you know fascinating. And moving forward, that if Red Bull, after you know they they take over and they they they've uh, they rebrand this power unit as a Red Bull engine uh, next year you know honda's dna is going to be in that uh, in that engine program uh, moving forward that uh, it will be interesting to see what red bull does and how they develop it uh, moving um, uh, moving forward but just kind of uh, dialing the conversation back a, a little bit to, to where it started uh, lewis he feels that uh, that red bull could actually be ahead a lot more that's exactly what he said he said quote could be a lot ahead a lot more in formula 1 uh, this year compared to uh, to, uh, to to mercedes and uh, he he's fully uh, aware that uh, that this is a battle 
battle that uh, that a lot of the fans uh, want to see. And he's also uh, <laughs> he's also very aware that it was only one race, and we we don't know how it's uh, going to really have an effect on the uh, the the entire season. But I think also what's uh, interesting too is Total Wolf Team Principal Mercedes says that he feels that there's that pump as he called it, the real drive and the same sort of vibe that they had in 2013 when they were really trying to, uh, you know, take it to the next level there. I mean, obviously from 2014 on, uh, it's, it's been all uh, Mercedes, but just that, that drive and that, that real determination within the team is very similar now as it was seven, eight years ago when they were still trying to establish themselves when they weren't the story that they were then, they were still, I, I, I don't want to say that Mercedes was an up-and-comer in mo- motorsport in 2013, I mean, considering their lineage and their history, but as a, as a, as a re-entrant in Formula One in 2013, or you know, several years before that, they were still very much a team with something to prove. And it's interesting now that they have a little bit of a, you know adversary, a little bit of a challenge after even one race. That uh, that that uh, Toto's making those those, those comparisons. <laughs> that yeah, I yeah, it, it would have. Uh, I would have thought uh, that might have been sort of common. Uh, you might expect that, you know, say five, six, seven, eight races into the season where maybe uh, Red Bull had won some races and had gone ahead in the championship and then Mercedes fought back and then had to catch up with them and ultimately pass them. But it is interesting that uh, just... Uh, it's it's not the sort of comments you're used to hearing from Lewis or from Total Wolf, especially so early in the season. And uh, I, I think that's why it's so tantalizing. I think that that's why a lot of people are really sort of digging into this. If, um, you know, really taking hold of this, uh, this uh, really pulling on that thread is because it is just it's something that we all want to see. Right. It's it's smart business in a lot of ways. And if you ever look at the comments that uh Anyone from the C-suite of a major organization makes following a financial release or after a quarterly earnings call, even if their results are blockbuster results and they've had a massive quarter and they've posted significant growth and fantastic operating income, that the CEOs, the CFOs, they're typically very conservative and cautious with their statements like, whoa, Mm -hmm. there's some serious headwinds coming. We don't know what the next six months are going to look like. There's competitors entering our space. Even if they feel differently, they're very, very cautious about about the way they speak to the future because one, they don't want to amplify analyst expectations and pump up the stock only to see it crash and then have to suffer all the stories that come with that. So I think it's pretty common for major companies to have their C-suite downplay expectations because they want to control the expectations of the analysts so they can keep the stocks table. And mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, what you're hearing from Total Wolf and what you're hearing from Lewis is they're just being cautious and they're being conservative and they may feel entirely different, right? They may know better what the development path is for the car. They may recognize that, hey, we've identified our opportunities and we have a plan in place and we're working on changing some components. They may they may feel completely differently, but I think their approach is the right thing to do. They're being cautious. They're being conservative. They're mm-hmm. being humble. Um, they're expressing some not necessarily gratitude, but some appreciation of what Red Bull's been able to to accomplish. And ultimately, if Red Bull does have a great season, then it looks good on them because they were humble and they were honest and they 
predicted this. What you don't want from Hamilton and what you don't want from Total Wolf right now is a whole bunch of noise and friction-induced comments that downplay what Red Bull is doing and pump up their accomplishment over the last six or seven years. Because ultimately, if the season doesn't play out in their favor, this builds a narrative that doesn't necessarily look good on them. So I think the things they're saying are correct. I think, though, as much as they could know a lot more than they're letting on, I think they're actually being pretty honest here. Uh, And to be totally honest, I think everything suggests that this is a very different Red Bull team than we've seen the past three or four or five years. And I think ultimately, even if Ferrari was still on the upward trajectory that we're seeing from 17 and 18, I think this Honda team with this power unit and all of the things that they've been able to do with it, especially in the last six to 12 months, I think this would be a better Red Bull team than a the Ferrari team. Um, It's helpful that they don't have to potentially split points with Ferrari when they're battling with Mercedes. But ultimately, I think Hamilton and Total Wolf deep down honestly believe that this is the most significant threat that they faced since 2013 when they didn't win a title the last time. Yeah, and I I think you really touch on a good point there is that uh, Red Bull is uh, at a level that we have not seen in quite a number of years. And when you couple that with the fact that uh, Mercedes is clearly having issues with the car at the moment, it really makes it uh, a, a real, really fascinating situation to watch. And that's why I think going to Imola next week is going to be that much more interesting because I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, pressure on Sergio Perez to deliver in qualifying to get a good spot on the grid because, like you said, uh, it was an absurd result for him to finish fifth after starting in the pit lane. So if he can qualify well, and that's why we know that there's a you know more of a level fee, uh, playing field between Lewis and uh, and Max Verstappen, but it really is going to be interesting to see where does Sergio compare to Valtteri Bottas the, the the next time that we get back to racing. And that is something I think that we're going to be watching all weekend long. I mean, yeah, the the, the practice sessions is a little bit of a, a false indicator because you never really know what somebody's doing. And uh, it, it you know the, the times that you can see the guys post can sometimes be a little bit uh, misleading because you just don't know what kind of trim they're running on the cars. You don't know what kind of scenario that uh, they're, they're trying to simulate. And uh, yeah, so we won't really know until we see their real pace when they get out for qualifying on Saturday and then, of course, in the race on Sunday. But if uh, it, it would be amazing to see if Max can go and uh, win, uh, you know, capture the pole again. And wouldn't that be something to see a Red Bull front row lockout? I mean, we're used to seeing a Mercedes front row lockout. We've seen the occasional Ferrari one, but to see a Red Bull one would be pretty much unheard of in in modern times. I mean, we're, we're going back a long time since they were that dominant in the sport. And then that would uh, really take this conversation. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about a number of different stories that you can kind of twist it uh, in, in a number of different ways. This one is kind of like a Rubik's Cube in that, uh, in that, uh, in that fashion as well, that you can really spin it in a lot of uh, different directions. And at that mark, that's that's really all I've got to, for for whoa, this whoa, week. Whoa, whoa, oh, you're not going to let whoa. me go? That okay? No, well, no, no. I'm done. Well, you're I'm not. I'm going to force in. I don't have a jingle, <laughs> but I'm going to force in MotoGP corner. Oh, okay. At go the for the four it. and a half hour mark of our podcast <laughs> on April 8th. So play the jingle. Doodly doodly doo. So the update this week is we are two races into the season. So Sweet. MotoGP opened with back to back races in Qatar, uh, which is about an hour's flight from Bahrain. Uh, the 
Current championship leader is Johan Zarco racing for the Ducati team. He has 40 points. So he is leading the championship by four points. Now, the one really interesting thing about MotoGP and one of the ways that it differs from Formula One, and they're very similar in a lot of ways, the way that they distribute points, the calendar, et cetera, et cetera, is that they have a constructor standings. They have team standings. So the constructor standings are, if you are Yamaha, for instance, and you produce an engine for your own bike, but you also produce and sell that engine onto other teams, you accumulate points based on the points that those teams achieve. So for instance, there is a constructor standings, which includes Yamaha, Ducati, Suzuki, Aprilia, KTM, and Honda. And then there's team standings. So those are the actual outfits themselves. So currently leading the team standings is Monster Energy, Yamaha, MotoGP. They have 72 points. That's largely because they picked up a race win and both of the first two races. Yamaha is also leading the constructor standing primarily because they're powering the Monster Energy team. And then of course, curiously, you currently have a Ducati driver or driver rider leading the championship. So one of the bigger narratives this year is how is Valentino Rossi going to look? So Valentino Rossi now in his 40s, a seven times world champion, He finished 12th in the first race after really strong qualifying. He finished 16th in the second race. Hmm. The other big storyline this year is Mark Marquez. What is he going to look like? He had a terrible injury last year. He forced his way back, and I I shouldn't blame him. The team encouraged him to come back earlier than he should have. He ended up missing the back half of the season after winning six titles in the preceding seven years. He hasn't yet been on a bike this year. So the Repsol Honda team looking really, really weak without him. Uh, The sport needs him back. He's a a big driver of marketing and promotion. But yes, two races in, and currently you have a Takati rider leading the Riders' Championship, and you have Yamaha leading the Constructors, and you have Monster. Energy Yamaha in their first season without Valentino Rossi in many years, currently leading the team standing. MotoGP corner, mic drop. I'm out. <laughs> I, I'm just going to add to that uh, that you know I have to admit that I love Ducati motorcycles because when you see one coming down the roads, they they sound like nothing else. They just sound so so amazing. There you go. There you go. Well, that's awesome, and I feel guilty that I almost uh, almost cut you off there. So uh, good for you for. Uh, well, you did good. feel guilty the last three months. We've been trying to squeeze this in. I'm teasing. I tease. Oh, I tease. Ooh, look at the time. <laughs> well, that's cool. I'm, I'm glad that uh, that we were able to to squeeze that in, and uh, definitely I, I'm uh, at the where you know where we're at what. 18 hours into the podcast this yeah. week. So I think it's time that we we, we call it a day and uh, let everybody get on with their lives. And with that, uh, everybody, thank you so much uh, for listening to the show this week. If you want to get in touch, please do so. Easiest way is on Twitter at f one pod or on the email at f one pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. This time next week, we're going to be previewing Imola and uh, can't wait to get back to, to racing. That's it from uh, me, from Mark Daly and from Mark Hamilton. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.